Hello, this is William Fink, and this program is being pre-recorded for Christagenia Weekends, which is a, a relatively new endeavor that it will replace my old Christagenia Saturdays program, which was discontinued with Hurricane Michael last October. I'm finally able to start getting back into recording or creating a second podcast each week, and hopefully we will be able to carry this for quite some time into the future, for as long as necessary. This evening, we have Sven Longshanks here once again, and we are going to resume our series of discussions on Bible basics, which we left off with sometime last September in, in 2018. Sven, hello. It's, it's, it's um, wonderful to have you here again after so long a break. Hi, Bill. Yeah, I'm very glad to be here once again. That was a very, very, very long two-week break that we spent between doing these podcasts. Um, I have listened back through the last six podcasts, and I've got a bit of a recap here for uh, listeners that haven't re-listened to them again. I did replay them uh, at Radio Arian last week, and they seem to have gone down well with the Radio Arian listeners. But as I say, I've got I've got a recap here, so maybe we could start with that, just so that we know where we got to. We've established that the Bible is the book of the white race, and that it provides all the basic information we need in order to understand the world. And we started by showing the historicity of the Bible and the corroborating evidence from pagan histories and religious texts that show the origins of the non-whites are in the serpent, the fallen angels, and their mixed-race offspring. Then we showed that all the nations descended from Noah were white, and we talked about some of the most prominent empires among them, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, Cush, and others. We explained how the first colonizers of southern Europe and the Mediterranean were the Japetites, and how they came to be supplanted by the Shemites in the form of Phoenicians, Dorians, Danans, and Trojans. We talked about the everlasting and non-conditional promise to Abraham through Isaac, and the conditional covenant made with some of these offspring that resulted in the United Kingdom of Israel and Judah, that would then fall into idolatry and lose their pride of place. Then we talked about the marriage contract Yahweh made with Israel and how he divorced them, but let them know that they could have faith that they would be reunited as it had already been promised, that they would become many nations and dominate the world. We discussed some of the prophecies that foretold the Israelites in dispersion would be pagans, but that due to the original Abrahamic promise, they would eventually be betrothed to Yahweh again and would multiply in new lands like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. We talked about the colonization of Europe by the ten tribes of Israel after being removed from Palestine, and also about the earlier colonization by sea from the Israelite empire that was known as Phoenicia. We showed that the Goths, the Alans, the Galatahi, the Scythians, the Cimmerians, and others all had their origin in Isaac's loins and their eventual destination as the Christian nations of Europe. We demonstrated that Northern Europe was sparsely populated, while all the action was taking place in the Fertile Crescent, the Near East, and Asia Minor. But by the time of Christ, the Israelites had multiplied to an immense multitude not to be measured by numbers in the North. 
and that the Romans, Parthians, Phoenicians and Scythians were totally dominating the known world at the time of Christ and were mostly all descended from Isaac. We showed that all the covenants were made with the same people and that the final promise would see Judah amalgamated with Israel through Christ and the supersession of the old contract with the portion of Isaac's sons who stayed in Palestine. Covenants are immutable contracts and cannot be changed, just like God's word cannot fail and stands for all time. And then we get up to the last episode, episode six, in which we talked about the marriage law, that unless the husband died, a woman who was married was committing adultery. Thus, God had to die in order for Israel to be released from the penalties that she owed for her adultery. And this had to happen in order for God to keep his promise to Abraham and continue to bless his people through the grace of God. Christ himself declared that he was the bridegroom in many places, and this is what he was referring to. He had to be God or else he could not claim to be the bridegroom. We demonstrated that the Romans that Paul was speaking to could only have been Israelites as nobody else was under the law. And we talked about how the New Testament is all about the amazing ways that these promises were kept in the face of constant attempts to frustrate them by the forces of evil. Finally, we showed what the faith of Abraham was, that his faith in God's promise that many nations would come from his loins through Isaac was so strong that he was prepared to kill Isaac in a sacrifice to God. The dedication of Isaac to be a sacrifice meant that he was anointed as the exclusive property of God and therefore all his descendants from then on were Yahweh's property or his portion and Yahweh was their sovereign. All the seed of Israel is to be saved regardless of if they kept the Mosaic covenant or not and that began with the substitution of the sacrificial goat for Isaac right back at the beginning. And that takes us right up to the end of episode six. And really what we should talk about today, I think, is Jesus's identification of the Jews as devils and why it was that he said that. And maybe we could go right back to the beginning and talk about dual seed line a bit as well and uh, Cain and uh, all that side of things, because we really haven't touched on that yet. And it is a very important part of Christian identity, I think. Well, it's absolutely um, necessary to understand the Bible and Christianity, period. It, it's um, why he called certain people devils, why they hated him, why he told them, you don't believe me because you're not my sheep, that now the Catholic Church would say that they're not his sheep because they didn't believe him. That's not what he said. He said, you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. Let's not turn this around. Let's try to understand this as he said it. And in order to do that, we have to go all the way back in history, at least until the fall of the first temple, which happened in 586 BC. But we have to go that far. We already discussed, as you said, and thank you for that rundown. It was it was an excellent summary, and, and I'm happy that you did it for us. Um, otherwise, we probably wouldn't know where to start today, right? <laughs> and we had already discussed Romans chapter 4 and Paul's explanation that the nations to which he was bringing this gospel were the literal seed of Abraham. In Romans chapter 9, 
after talking about sin and, and the spiritual aspects of man through Romans chapters five, six, seven, and eight, in, in Romans chapter nine, Paul sort of makes a break and he is explaining basically the reason for the split in Judea, the um, divided opinions in Judea between those people who hate Christ and, and those who are the recipients of the promises who accepted Christ. That's what Paul's doing in Romans chapter 9. And he says, and I'm going to read this from my own translation, only because it's a little clearer than the King James Version, in my opinion. He says, I speak the truth among the anointed or among the people of Christ. I lie not, my conscience bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit, that grief for me is great and distress incessant in my heart. For I have prayed that I myself would be accursed from the anointed on behalf of, for the brethren, my kinsmen in regards to the flesh. Paul was concerned for his fleshly kinsmen. That, that's, a, that, that's basically a racial statement. He's not praying for other people. He said, for those who are Israelites, they are his racial kinsmen. Whose is the position of sons, which the King James translates as adoption. So the adoption is for Israelites, right? And the honor and the covenants and the law and the service and the promises. All of these things are for Israelites, his people, his kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're the people he's concerned with. They are the people whom all these things are for, according to the words of Paul of Tarsus. He's not a universalist. He only cares about his own race. Whose are the fathers? The legitimate descendants of the fathers. And whom are the anointed in regards to the flesh? So there we see very racial statements by Paul that these covenants, promises, and his concern are only for that one race of people, his kinsmen according to the flesh. Now, he says, not, however, that the word of God has failed, since not all those who are from Israel are those of Israel. Paul's talking about people according to the flesh. He's not talking about church spiritual Israelites. This idea of spiritual Israel is a misconception which was created back in the second century AD. And the earliest place I could find it is in the writings of Justin Martyr, but it is not Christianity. It's the basis for replacement theology and the false Christianity that we have today, but it is not true Christianity. Paul goes on to say, not, however, that the word of God has failed, since not all of those who are from Israel are those of Israel. So what we have is we have fake Israelites back in the first century. And we'll just shelve that idea for a second. Nor because they are offspring of Abraham, all children, but in Isaac will your offspring be called. 
In other words, Abraham's other offspring, those through Keturah and Ishmael, that they're not being counted as Abraham's children. The covenants are not with them. The, the promises don't come down through them. They're children of the flesh, but they're not children of the promises. In Isaac will your offspring be called, and we've already seen and explained, as you said in your summary, that Isaac was placed on the altar, and from that time, he became the property of God, that only his descendants would be considered the offspring of Abraham in relation to these promises. And Paul says, that is to say the children of the flesh, these are not children of Yahweh, or of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. Indeed, this word of promise, and Paul goes on to explain that the promises to Sarah and to Rebekah, and Sarah was the wife of Abraham, and Rebekah was the wife of Isaac. And then Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, then not yet having been born in relation to the promises to Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, nor having performed any good or evil, that the purpose of God concerning the chosen endures, not from rituals, not from anything we could do in religion, but from the calling, from the original word of God. To her it was said, the elder will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love and Esau I hated. Paul goes on to contrast the children of Isaac through Jacob and through Esau. Jacob was loved, Esau was hated. Jacob, the children of Jacob, are described further on in the chapter as vessels of mercy, the children of Esau as vessels of destruction. So we have the New Testament period and all subsequent history basically revolving around these two sets of descendants from Isaac, those of Jacob and those of Esau. And people might wonder how the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, Esau was called Edom, and his children were called Edomites, or in Greco-Roman writing, Edomians. The only difference is the ending. These Edomites were actually prevalent in Judea in the first century AD. However, the churches, believing in this concept of spiritual Israel and replacement theology, the churches actually have ignored the presence of these Edomians in first century Judea and they have ignored the consequences of that presence. They've ignored the religious implications because it doesn't matter in their model of replacement theology, which is a false theology. <clears throat> so they've basically ignored the reason why we have Jews. We have to ask why we have these Jews. We can explain it. We in Christian identity can explain it. Because as Christ told his adversaries, if you didn't believe Moses, you won't believe me. And the Jews claim to cling to the law and the prophets, 
but they don't do anything of the sort. When you actually look at the Talmud, their true religious book, it's absolutely contrary to the law and the prophets. 100%. The Jews claim to be Israelites and do everything opposite. They have none of the character and nature of the original Israelites. They have none of the character and nature of the apostles. The, the apostles were, were, were all um, humble, moral, law-abiding men. And, and they would never loan money at interest or, or become bankers and, and, and thieves and, and pornographers and everything we see from Judaism for, for thousands of years. I'm sorry if I'm getting winded. Well, I was just going to su suggest that, um, you know, we, we, we hear a lot about Esau in the New Testament, don't we? Paul contrasts um, Jacob, Israel, and Esau, Edom quite a lot. And, and we get uh, confirmation of Esau's character. We get told that he's a, he's a fornicator and he sold his birthright for a morsel of meat, which I think the two are, are connected there. The morsel of meat was his Canaanite wife. And Esau was such a race mixer that his, uh, that his mother said that if Jacob does the same, then I might as well kill myself. And, and Genesis tell, tells us that they, they were such a grief of mind to her, basically. Sorry, Bill, go on. No, that's, that, that's absolutely instrumental to understanding all of this. And, and we have to take that um, fake Israelite theme from Romans chapter 9. And just hold it on the back burner because before we, we, we get into the implications and go back to, to explain that the, the beginnings which lead to those implications and consequences, we have to understand a basic sketch of the actual recorded history of how all of these Edomites became Jews or Judeans, because in the first century, there was no word Jew. It was Judea, and the people were called Judeans, and Judea was the name of a Roman province centered around Jerusalem, of course, and it was a political district. It's a political entity, which at the time of the Romans contained people of several different races. Okay, if you read Strabo, Strabo of Cappadocia, the famous Greek geographer, in book 16 of his geography, tells us several times that in Judea, the Edomians or Edomites and the Judeans are all mixed up with each other. They're all living there. They're all mingled in. And, and that, that's a historical fact that we see in Strabo, and he mentions it several times, not just once, and it's explained by Josephus in his Antiquities, and it's also evident in both New and Old Testaments. Christ, in the Revelation, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, and in Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, warns about those who say they are Judeans, but are not. They are of the synagogue of Satan. So we have, just like Paul said in Romans chapter 9, is people in Israel who are not Israelites in the revelation on two occasions, not one, but two, 
Christ warns about people who claim to be Judeans, and they're not Judeans. They're actually from some other group, which are his enemies. In Romans chapter 9, Paul identifies those enemies. He says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And that is actually a quote from the prophet Malachi, who was writing in the 4th century B.C., 400, almost 500 years before Paul. So we have a history to explain. And that history, we, we could go all the way back to the beginning to Jacob and Esau, but where we should probably start today in, in what, what I'll try to make a brief explanation is with 586 B.C. When the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, the Edomites were among the Babylonian allies. They allied themselves with the Babylonians to help destroy Jerusalem. And they did that because the Edomites were actually a vassal state to the Israelites from the time of David for 400 years before this. They were under the rule of the Israelites. Well, there's further evidence for this in, in the scriptures, for instance, in 1 Esdras chapter 4, where among other things that Ezra described recorded, we read the words of Zerubbabel, who wrote, who, who about 70 years after the destruction of Jerusalem had said to the king of Persia, thou hast also vowed to build up the temple which the Edomites burned when Judea was made desolate by the Chaldees or the Chaldeans, who were the Babylonians. And that's also verified in the 137th Psalm, which is written during the Babylonian captivity. And, and it says in verse 7, Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. So we see the Edomites in league with the Babylonians when Judea is destroyed. And of course, that, that's verifiable in ancient Babylonian inscriptions as well, that these were all vassal states who had um, complied with the Babylonians while the people in Jerusalem were rebelling against the Babylonians. So any... The, the practice of all these empires was to subjugate states and then compel the armies of those states to fight along with them so they could be more powerful and go out and conquer other stronger nations. That's how it works. Well, well the reward that the Edomians received after the last of the Israelites were deported off to Babylon the reward they received was basically that they were able to move northward into the lands of Judah in, and Israel, and they did so in rather large numbers after the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of the Israelites. And these, in, 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 ancient, in ancient times, Edunia was to the south of Israel and Judah, of the land of Israel, in the desert. It was pushed down into the south. It, it, it was always there for a thousand years. That was Edomia. That's evident in Assyrian and Babylonian inscriptions, where Edomia used to be before 586 BC. 
Well, if you look at Persian and the Hellenistic era records, the records of the Greeks, you'll see that Edomia is actually most of the ancient land of Israel south of Jerusalem is Edomia. That, that's Edomia had become a little more than the southern half of Israel. And south of Edomia was Nabataea, the land of the Nabataeans. Now, the Nabataeans are Arabs, and they get their name from the descendants of Ishmael. And the Nabataeans were always in league with the Edomites. The confusion of the Greeks is to the point where Strabo, who wrote about the Edomites and the Judeans, Strabo believed that the Edomites were originally Nabataeans. Why? Because he knew that they came from the land of Nabataea, which was the new name for Edomia, because when the Edomians moved north, the Nabataeans took over the old land of Nadubia, Edomia centered around Petra and a few other towns to the, to the west of Petra. So this is complicated, but what you had is population replacement. The Assyrians came and took most of the Israelites away. The Babylonians came and took the rest of the Israelites away. When that happened, the Edomites were able to move north, and the Nabataeans took the land of Edom to themselves. So that's evident in Strabo, and it's explained in depth in Flavius Josephus, and it's evident in our Bible, in Ezekiel chapter 34 and 35, chapters 34 and 35. And then after Ezekiel speaks about the Israelites going and, 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 and being taken away and wandering in the hills and the valleys and the mountains in, in a very poetic way, he, he says... He writes an oracle of God against the Edomites and how Edom was going to be punished, and he attributes it in chapter 35, verse 10, to the fact that because thou hast said, and this is God talking to Edom, talking to Edom collectively as a people, because thou hast said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess it. That is a full indication that the Edomites had came and occupied the ancient lands of Judah and Israel after the Israelites were all taken away. So that can be established historically. It could be established in inscriptions, and it can be established in scripture that the Edomites had taken over much of the ancient land and many of the cities of Judah and Israel after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. They didn't have the power to do it before the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. When we see um, the return of some people of Judah, meaning some of the tribe of Judah, Levi, and Benjamin, we see a return 70 years later from about 520 BC. We see a return of about 45,000 people back to Jerusalem under Cyrus, the king of Persia, who allowed that to happen. He, he wanted them to return and to rebuild their nation. 
So we read in Nehemiah chapter two that Jerusalem was still in heaps of rubble, that it was still desolate. And it wasn't fully rebuilt until at least the last return of Ezra in 457 BC, when Jerusalem, when the walls were rebuilt, because that happened in the time of Nehemiah, rebuilt the walls, and Ezra started to rebuild the city inside the walls and, and put Jerusalem back together again. And that process lasted for many years. It probably lasted for 50 years until they actually did that. Jerusalem, and, and this is recorded in the histories of Flavius Josephus, when Alexander the Great comes in, um, in, in, in or around 330 BC, Jerusalem is a thriving city. And they immediately vacillated to Alexander the Great. They didn't want to have any war with him. They wouldn't, um, he, he became angry with them because they wouldn't take part in the war against Tyre to conquer the island of Tyre. But they still vacillated to the Greeks. So Jerusalem remained a thriving city throughout the Hellenistic period. I'm probably getting a little off base, but Jerusalem, the Judeans described Herodotus in, in the Persian Wars, in his histories, Herodotus called the Judeans the Syrians of Palestine. Why? Because there was really no racial difference between the Syrians, who at that time were fully white, and the Judeans. Herodotus over and over again called them the Syrians of Palestine, and they contributed to the Persian side of the war. They helped build ships, they supplied soldiers to the Persians, and of course, we know the Persians lost. So there is an identifiable and continuous history of these people throughout the intertestamental period. We see, and we can see this in the secular records, and it's also in many, many inscriptions. Can I add a couple the, of things here, a, a minute, Bill? I think, I think also, um, some of the other peoples that that went there were called the Sephavaim, which I think is possibly where this idea of the Sephardic Jews originated from, or the Sephavaim that also moved into Judea when the uh, tribe of Judah had been removed away and also when the remnant of judah went back did they drive those edomites out that were there because i think they were they were quite they, they, they were quite zealous to actually follow the law they kicked out the strange wives they kicked out the um the bastard children and they wanted to get back to following the law basically and they, they and they, i know that they had some trouble with the edomites that were there at the time but they must have kicked them out by the time that um Alexander the Great got there because, as you say, it was a thriving city, and you were saying that, um, and and they looked like these these white Syrians. So, were the Edomites driven out, the ones that moved in there while Judah had been taken away once the remnant came back? Well, well, the problem is first Jerusalem was empty; it was desolate. There were no Edomites in Jerusalem, but they were in the cities to the south and to the west that had originally belonged to the Israelites. They were in Marisa or, or the biblical Marisha. They, they were in Dor, 
which was an Israelite city. It was originally a Philistine city. It became an Israelite city. And, and they were all over the, the, the south and the other towns and villages to the, to the west. And I will get into that. But there is a race-mixing problem that persisted. Right from the days of Nehemiah, Nehemiah's, and, and this is contrary to mainstream so-called scholarship, which is all based on, on, on the, the Talmudic Jews, but Nehemiah was actually earlier than Ezra. I, I don't care what these mainstream scholars say about Nehemiah being in 440 BC and, and Ezra being early on. They're just wrong. I can prove them all wrong. I have papers online that have proven them all wrong. Nehemiah was the governor of Jerusalem under the Persians from 502 BC to 490 BC. Nehemiah was recalled to Persia after the death of Darius in his war with the Scythians. And when the Greeks when the Persians were preparing to go to war to invade the Greeks. Now, from 490 BC until 457 BC and the return of Ezra to Jerusalem, nothing happened in Palestine because that was the period during which the war was being waged against the Greeks. And at the death of Xerxes, very little happened as far as because the Persians suffered such a great loss against the Greeks. And it was a loss of a tremendous magnitude. They lost an army of almost, a, 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 I don't know, 250,000 men in the last years of the war alone. They lost, according to Herodotus, they lost 2,500 ships and their crews, approximately. So it was a loss of tremendous magnitude for the Persians. Nothing, no rebuilding, no public works projects were going on in Persia until the return of Ezra to Jerusalem in 457. The confusion comes because the first five and a half or six and a half chapters of Ezra are a reflection back on the days of Nehemiah. And the rest of Ezra is his own time. And, and there's a lot of confusion in the terms and the titles, but I have papers online that explain the history of that period in detail and, and prove my case about the chronology of Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and that's a digression, right? But, but Nehemiah experienced the first, and, and it, was, it, it was in short time, the first time that these returnees to Jerusalem had started mixing it up with the surrounding Canaanites and Edomites. Right away it happened. And he put a stop to it. Ezra experienced it once again. And Ezra was so disgusted with, with the priests that came back from Babylon that he basically got rid of them. He, he had went to Cassiphia, which was in Scythian territory. The Scythians were the ancient Israelites. A lot of them retained their identity, their traditions. Ezra went to Cassiphia, 
where there were Levites on the Caspian Sea and brought them back from the captivity, brought them back to Jerusalem to serve as priests. And, and that's mentioned in the book of Ezra. Well, it wasn't another hundred years, and we read in the prophecy of Malachi, which was probably written, it's very hard to date Malachi, but it's definitely, Malachi was definitely the last of the Old Testament prophets. He either wrote very late in the 5th century, after the time of Ezra, or very early in the 4th century. That's my best educated guess. And he, once again, wrote about the race mixing of certain of the priests. And some of those priests had actually been forced out, and they went to Mount Gerizim in Samaria, because they were intermarrying with Samaritans. Now, some of those Samaritans were a remnant of the ancient Israelites, but not all Samaritans were. Other Samaritans were, as you said, people brought in by the Assyrians who were foreigners. They were probably Adamic, but they were foreigners. So we have this race-mixing history of these priests in Jerusalem that it actually goes back further than that. And, and we could show it in, in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, but they were constantly breaking this covenant. And, and that's why Malachi says that Judah had married the daughter of a strange God, and he was referring to the priests in Jerusalem. And that's the first indication of, of the gravity of the sin, which remained in Jerusalem for a long time. When we see um, Flavius Josephus, and I know the word has a very bad reputation, but when we read the history of Flavius Josephus, we have these Hasmonean high priests. They were known as the Maccabees, right? Maccabee means hammer. That was only like a nickname because they had hammered the Syrians, that they rose up an, an army that the people of Judea were getting tossed back and forth in wars between um, the Seleucids, who were the Greek kings of Syria, and the Ptolemies, who were the Greek kings of Egypt. And sometimes Jerusalem was being ruled by the Ptolemies and sometimes by the Seleucids, and, and they were stuck in the middle of this war or, or these wars that went on for a long time un until finally that they were settled. But while Antiochus had really oppressed the people in Jerusalem around 156, 160 to 156 BC, and the Hasmonean high priests raised an army and defeated the Seleucids around 156 BC and gained their independence at that time. And Judea remained independent from 156 BC down to about the coming of the Romans around 70 BC. That's a rough date, right? I could be off by five or six years, around 70 BC. So when, when it became subject to Rome. So we have this 80-something-year 80, 80 period of independence. And for the first 25 or so years, 20, maybe about 30 years, 
the Hasmonean policy, once they gained independence, was to go around to the surrounding cities and take them back for the people of Judah or the Judeans, they could be called by this time. And they were destroying the cities and driving out the inhabitants. But the inhabitants always came back. They were always coming back after a few years and, and getting their cities back because the Judeans, while they had a powerful army, it was a small army, they didn't have enough people to make fortresses all over the place and hold the, the territory they reconquered. So they really couldn't have a reconquista, right? That they would drive out the inhabitants and they'd have problems with them again in a few years. They burned down their cities and had problems with them again in a few years. The books of the Maccabees tell that story. One Maccabees and two Maccabees. Two Maccabees is not a sequel to one Maccabees. We have first Maccabees and then we have second Maccabees is actually from a history written by Jason of Cyrene. And it's a, it's a telling of the same story of the same period from a different perspective. But the books of the Maccabees leave off with the ascension to the high priesthood of John Hyrcanus. That's where one Maccabees and two Maccabees both end around the same time when John Hyrcanus comes to power in Jerusalem. And John Hyrcanus, to get his story, we have to pick up with Flavius Josephus, okay? Because Maccabees don't have it. So, Hyrcanus comes to power about 129 BC, if I could estimate that properly. And he changed the whole policy. At the same time, if you see Flavius Josephus, and like I said, I know the word gets a bad rap because of how it was used in, in the New Testament, but originally it was probably a good word. At the same time, we see the sects arrive, arise of the Pharisees and the Sadducees around the same time as the rise of the Maccabees. You had Pharisees and Sadducees. Sadducees are really kind of like today's progressive, liberal, atheist Democrats. They weren't atheists in the sense that they denied God. They couldn't do that back then. They were atheists in the sense that they didn't believe in anything spiritual, and they didn't believe that God had any care in the affairs of men. And Flavius Josephus describes that. So the Sadducees seem to be the real predecessors of most of today's Jews. But the Pharisees, the word Pharisee means separatist. And it's my theory, I can't prove it, that originally, because they came at the same time that the Edomites were going to be converted by the Judeans, the Pharisees, I believe, were separatists because they were originally racial separatists, but they lost that battle in the days of John Hyrcanus. Because John Hyrcanus, as Josephus says in Antiquities Book 13, took Dora and Marisa. Now, they were originally Israelite cities in the Old Testament, but the Edomites had taken them over back in the days of Ezekiel. 
Hyrtanus took Dora and Marisa, cities of Edumia, and subdued all the Edumians and permitted them to stay in that country if they would submit to circumcision and make use of the laws of the Judeans. And they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers, their forefathers were only about 350 years, 400 years, that they submitted to the rite of circumcision and of the rest of the Judean ways of living, at which time, therefore, this befell them, that they were thereafter considered to be Judeans. So these Edomites in Dora and Marisa and the surrounding towns became Judeans in about 125 B.C., but that's not the end of that story. And even most Christian identity so-called pastors, they stop there. Later on in the same book, in Antiquities Book 13, Alexander Janaeus comes to power. He was the first high king. He, he was the, I'm sorry, he was the first high priest who called himself a king. None of the high priests did that before him. So Alexander Janius called himself a king, and he ruled Judea from 103 to about 76 BC. He died not long before the coming of the Romans, or maybe even at the coming of the Romans. I really don't remember. And we see the same policy that Hyrcanus had initiated it was being continued by Alexander Janius 30 years later. And Josephus writes, Alexander marched again to the city of Dios and took it and then made an expedition against Essa, where was the best part of Zeno's treasures. And there he surrounded the place with three walls. And when he had taken the city by fighting, he marched to Golan and Seleucia. And that's to the north of Jerusalem. And when he had taken these cities, besides them, took that which was called the Valley of Antiochus and also the fortress of Gamala. He also accused Demetrius, who was the governor of those places of many crimes, and turned him out. And after he had spent three years in this war, he returned to his own country when the Judeans joyfully received him upon his good success. Now, at this time, the Judeans were in possession of the following cities that belonged to the Syrians and Edomians and Phoenicians. In the middle of the country, near to Edomia, Adorn and Marisa, near the country of Samaria, Mount Carmel and Mount Tabor, Scythopolis and Gadara, one of those towns mentioned in the New Testament, of the country of Golanitis, Seleucia, and Gabala, in the country of Moab, that is, east of the Jordan, Heshbon and Medaba, Lemba and Oronas, Gelithon, Zara, the valley of the Kalikes, and Pella. Now, this is important to understand this entire passage. And Pella, which they last utterly destroyed because its inhabitants would not bear to change their religious rights for those peculiar to the Judeans. 
And the full and clear implication there is that as Alexander Janius had conquered all of these other towns, they did agree just like we see of Dora and Marisa in the days of Hyrcanus, they did agree to change their religious rights to those peculiar to the Judeans. So all these people became, quote-unquote, Jews. The proof of that is throughout the subsequent history that as we see in the Roman period, all these people of all these towns were considered Jews and kept the religious practices of the Judeans until they were forced into worshiping the emperor, of course. The Judeans also possessed others of the principal cities of Syria. Remember, they had defeated the Seleucids, which had been destroyed. After this, King, Al King Alexander, although he fell into a distemper by hard drinking and had a quartan ago, which held him three years, yet he would not stop going out with his army till he was quite spent with the labors he had undergone and died in the bounds of Rogaba, a fortress beyond Jordan. So if Alexander Janius destroyed some cities because they would not convert to Judaism, we can be certain that all these other cities certainly did convert to Judaism, the practice which Hyrcanus had initiated before him. Alexander died about 76 BC, and from this point, especially under the Herods, the Edomites eventually came to dominate all of Jer Jerusalem and Judea, including the temple, which they had full control of by the time of Christ. Nearly all of the high priests, even though most of the priests were Pharisees, the Pharisees kind of became like today's conservative Republicans or, or, or construction con constructionist conservatives they wanted to cling to the law but they were just ignoring the entire race issue today we have conservatives that want to cling to the constitution in the united states i'm sorry you're in wales but you understand the argument they want to cling to the constitution but they totally ignore the preamble that says that this is for us and our posterity they totally ignore that part it's the same thing with the Pharisees. They wanted to cling to the law, but they totally ignored all of the parts which tell us that the laws were only for the race of the Israelites. So they started to become civic nationalists. Basically, by the time of Christ, the Pharisees were civic nationalists. Can we I just add something, Bill? Can I just, can I just add something there, Bill? I think the as because of that, you ended up with the Essenes. I, I think they were racial. From what um, Flavius Josephus tells us, they they broke away from the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they wanted they they took everything literally and they obeyed the law literally and they separated themselves from all the rest of the Judeans. And, and I think it was because it got so bad. Right. Here's the key to that, though. Here's the key to understanding our predicament today in light of the ancient history of Judea. The Essenes were racial. Josephus started his career as an Essene. 
He was an Essene for three years, and he left to become a Pharisee. Why? Because Josephus was a politically-minded man. And later in life, he was a Judean general and was heavily involved in the politics in Galilee. He was a personal friend of Herod Agrippa II. His daughter married a Herod. So Josephus, even though I believe he was a Levite, a true Israelite, and an honest man, he was a conservatard. He was a civic nationalist. He was no different than today's Republicans who would, like Trump, marry his children off to Jews for his own political advantage. So, the Essenes, Josephus tells us, were Judah by birth. They were actually Israelites. But the key is that the Essenes were disenfranchised. They had no role in the politics of Judea. They were basically on the social edges. They were the fringe. And we see that today with white nationalists. It's the same thing all over again. That's another digression, but that's okay. We're probably going to have a lot more before the series actually concludes. Well, I've just got From one Greek more, Bill. I've got, I got one more here um, as well. I mean, it, they didn't just stop there with, with the, um, the, the Edomians and, and the Syrians and these other cities. And they eventually opened it up completely. And they had proselytes of the gate and proselytes of justice. And you had people traveling there just so that they could then, then become Jews. I mean, it was just opened up to everybody, wasn't it? Right. The Pharisees were trying to make everybody conservative Republicans. They were proselyting to everybody. <laughs> sounds like the alt-right today. Yeah, it is very similar. <laughs> it sounds like the Republican Party today. It's the, it's the prevailing attitude. It's the same thing all over again. That They would make proselytes of anybody to get people on their side. And they were always in conflict with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a very small minority of the priests, but the Sadducees, if you follow Flavius Josephus, almost every one of the high priests from the time of the first Herod, from the death of the first Herod, or, or actually from the time of the reign of the first Herod, until the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, almost every single high priest was a Sadducee. They were not Pharisees. They were never Pharisees. They were all Sadducees. And they were all from only a few families who I have in, in, in my commentary on the book of Acts and, and other portions of my work, I have circumstantial evidence that those Sadducees were all Edomites. I can't prove it with empirical evidence, but there certainly is a fair amount of circumstantial evidence. You know, when that um, when the, when the temple was finally destroyed by by the Romans, it was all Edomians that were that were within there. I think it was about twenty thousand Edomites were within that for temple. Part, for the most part, it, it was all Edomians in Jerusalem. Yes, and and Josephus writes about that. But for the most part, the people that remained, quote unquote, Judeans or Jews were nearly all the Dumians in Palestine. And the rest of the people all eventually, for the most part, became Christians or intermarried with the Edomians and, and got sucked into the Edomian bloodline. 
so today's Jews are primarily descended from Edomians, not from Israelites. When Herod, Herod came to power through treachery, he was appointed, his father was a popular Edomite, he was an Edomian, Herod was an Edomian on both sides of his family. Josephus informs us of that at least four times throughout his writing that the Herods were Edomians or Edomites. And Herod's father was very popular with the Hasmonean high priests and was appointed a general of, of the Judean army. Well, he in turn got his sons, two of his sons appointed as the governors of Galilee and J Jerusalem. And his sons were treacherous and Herod, the younger son, I believe, he actually won out in a struggle between the two sons, and of Antipas was his father's name, and eventually he married the daughter of one of the last of the high priests. And after he married her and really ingratiated himself with her family, he killed them all. He killed almost every single one of her family, and then he killed her, and then he killed the sons he had with her. He killed them all. He took power completely, and that happened, that culminated up to about 36 BC when he bribed Mark Antony to get appointed king of the Romans, and at that time, Rome was governed by a triumvirate, and the Senate still had a lot of power. So Mark Antony took his bribe, and he went back to Rome, and he had Herod appointed king of Judea as a vassal state to the Romans, of course, but Herod was king, meaning that he had, in Roman law, he had full power of the internal affairs in Judea, and he used that power to destroy all of his political enemies and subdue the Israelite Judeans to his authority. He appointed, he eliminated the Aaronic line of the inherited high priests. He killed the last of them, and they tried to get the Parthians to fight for them because the Parthians were related to them. And the Parthians were ultimately defeated and got tied up in wars with the Romans and really had no uh, ability to help them. Well, well, Herod began appointing his Edomite cronies and political allies to the high priesthood. And that is a situation which continued until his son Herod Archelaus came to power and the Romans took the authority to appoint the high priests. And that lasted for a short period. But then Herod Agrippa I was given the authority by Rome to appoint the high priests. And after Herod Agrippa I, it was Herod Agrippa II who succeeded him. But basically, these Edomite Herodians had the power over the temple, complete authority over the temple and its officers for the whole rest of the history of Judea down to 70 AD. So that's the situation we see in the New Testament, where Herod Antipas and Herod Agrippa are governors over portions of 
Judea and and they're appointing all of the political offices and they are Edomites with full control politically of the internal affairs of Judea. Even though Herod Archelaus what was um he he was his father's successor, but the Romans had he was so cruel and such a a tyrant and mismanager of his dominion that the Romans got rid of him and banished him and split the kingdom back up into four pieces in into tetrarchies. But they still continued to appoint Herod's descendants, his other sons and, and their sons, over those tetrarchies. So the Herods, even though they lost being king, they continued to rule Judea's internal affairs. Now, there were some legal differences they had to deal with, like they weren't able to execute capital crimes. They had to let the Romans do that and, and other things. But Herod Agrippa I did become king again of his father's dominions, but that was only from 41 to 44 AD. And then it was split back up a second time into tetrarchies. So the the history of Judea was rather tumultuous throughout that period. There were always rebellions and, and dissensions, but it, it was basically ruled over by the Herods under the Romans almost completely. And, and the Edomites, the Edomite cliques actually had the power and exercised it several times to get rid of Roman governors to go to Rome and complain about Pontius Pilate and have him called back in, into Rome to account for that. They actually did that. Pontius Pilate ran into trouble with the Jews a few years after the execution of Christ, the, the crucifixion, and, and he had to go to Rome and account for it. But he was fortunate that the emperor died before he got to trial so that he didn't have to face the charges. Or, or something like that, if I remember correctly. Um, something fortuitous happened that he didn't have to face the charges. But it it was still, the, the Edomites had a lot of power, and throughout that entire period, they had a lot of influence with Rome. Herod had a lot of influence with Julius Caesar. He also courted Cleopatra, and, and Caesar got her instead. But, but he, he was... Um, a very prominent political figure throughout the Roman occupation of Judea. They had, the, had all the politics sewn up. They had the, the religious side of the state all sewn up. I mean, basically just, just running things. And this, this is why you've got the, re the rejection of the Jews by Christ, because the Jews are in, are in the main the, these Edomites. And this explains all the the way that they keep coming up in in Paul's letters when he's contrasting the the Edomites or he's contrasting Esau with with Jacob Israel and you've got the the verses that you talked about at the beginning there about not all Israel are Israel and this this both of these two matters are uh, are interconnected Esau and the rejection of the Jews and both of these matters are completely ignored by the church and yet it, it's central to the to the whole storyline and you, you'll never hear the modern day church talk about Esau or Edom. Not, 
now that we have the historical background and and it, it's pretty solid it it really is substantiated in the bible in the old testament in the new testament in jo flavius josephus in in the pages of strabo of cappadocia and in other sources and and it's pretty much cemented that these are definite facts and now we could discuss the consequences and the implications, right? The consequences are the division in Judea. And Paul describes that, uh, that division in Romans chapter 9, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, vessels of mercy, vessels of destruction. He, not all of those who are Israelites are of Israel, or not all of those who are of Israel are Israelites. The, Paul is telling us that a great number of these people are Edomites, and that's the reason for the division. And he's only praying for his kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are really the subjects of the covenants and the promises. So that's a very racial message in Romans chapter 9. Once you understand the historical background that led Paul to make those distinctions, now you have the words of Christ in Luke chapter 11, where he tells his adversaries that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required, and the King James has, of this generation. But the word isn't generation. The word is genea, and it means race, stock, or nativity. Genea is a race, as we see race today, from the blood of Abel under the blood of Zecharias. Now, the law of God, the law of God rejects the notion that a man should be guilty of a crime that he himself did not commit. So you can't be blamed personally for the death of um, Herman in, in the Tudorberg forest. If you're a Roman today, you can't be blamed for that. You didn't do that under God's law, you can't be um, blamed for a murder that you did not commit under God's law. But here, Christ condemns an entire race, speaking of fathers and sons, speaking of people near and remote, from the blood of Abel under the blood of Zecharias. It shall be required of this race. It's not generation. Even when the word genea refers to a generation, the, the idea of race cannot be taken away from it. It means an entire generation of people, an entire group of people alive at one time who all belong to the same race. It's used in a singular, not in a plural. It shall be required of this race. How are his adversaries in Jerusalem, how could they be accounted guilty for the blood of Cain and all the prophets unless their race actually committed all those murders? Unless their race has been evil from generation to generation to generation. The Zechariah mentioned here, I know in Matthew's version is an interpolation that doesn't belong there. But the Zechariah mentioned here is actually the father of John the Baptist. He was killed by the Edomian high priests. He was killed for his testimony of the Christ. 
The and and that's according to the Protoevangelion of James, which I, I think has suffered some emendations and changes, but it gives us a lot of insight into this period and what early Christians thought about it. These Edomites, if we go back to the story of Esau, it was important to Esau's mother that Jacob marry somebody of his own race because Esau, without the advice and consent of his parents, had married women from the Canaanites, specifically from the Hittites, the daughters of Heth. And the Canaanites, if we go back to um, Genesis chapter 15 and other passages that, ha- that were earlier, the Canaanites had intermingled, had race mixed with the Rephaim. The Rephaim are the giants of the, the Genesis 6 account. The Rephaim are bastards, and they were around. They're still around today. There are Rephaim with us, among us today. The Rephaim were the later kings of the Canaanite tribes, Og of Bashan, um, Goliath was a mercenary. Goliath and his brothers were all Rephaim. That's described in the accounts in, in Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, where they are all sons of the giant, Rapha. Rapha is one of the giants, and one of the Anakim. The Anakim were also giants, and, and another division or family line descended from those Genesis 6 giants. So the Rephaim and the Kenites, the Canaanites were mingled with the Kenites. And the only way that Christ could be telling his this race that they're responsible for the blood of Abel is if they are Kenites. That's the only way. And they certainly are Kenites. They are Kenites through the intermingling of the Edomites of, of Esau with Canaanite wives who are partially descended from Kenites. And when we go back into the Old Testament, the sin of Jerusalem is ascribed to the race mixing of the leaders of the people in Jeremiah chapter 2. In Ezekiel chapter 16, it's described the same way, but it's described in prophetic language that is actually very poetic, but still must be taken for what it says. Son of man caused Jerusalem to know her abominations. That's Ezekiel chapter 16, verse two. And say, thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite and thy mother a Hittite. The people of Jerusalem were race mixing. At that time, these cosmopolitan leaders and merchants and wealthier people of the tribes of Israel were always seeking international trade and riches through international trade and international treaties. And we see that in the prophet Amos. We see it in the prophet Hosea. But it's couched in prophetic and poetic language that unless people really understand the historical background, just like Romans chapter 9, they'll never understand what's actually being said or what's actually being described. 
in John chapter 8, Christ told his adversaries that you are of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. They claimed to be physical children of Abraham, and they were. Edomites descended from Abraham, but they were Edomites. They weren't Israelites. And because the blood of Cain was running through the veins of Esau's descendants, their real father was the devil who was a murderer from the beginning. Who was a murderer from the beginning? Only Cain was a murderer from the beginning. And Cain was a literal devil, which goes back to the events in Genesis chapter 3 that we should probably start with maybe next week. Uh, it, it's, it, if you want to continue this discussion, that's fine. But that's another digression that's going to take longer than we have this evening. Yeah, I, I think we could go for that next week. I, I just point out that I think there's, there's a parallel here um, because you're saying God's law is that a man cannot be tried for the crimes of his fathers and yet the the jews as a whole race are being told that they are guilty of the crimes of their fathers and if we look at the way the jews are today that's the way they are they blame today's germans for everything that went on during the war they blame today's white people today's europeans for everything that's gone on for the last two thousand years so they what's happening is they're, they're being judged by their own standards i think when it says exactly they exactly. are guilty they're of being it. judged by the way you judge that's what christ says judge not lest ye be judged he's talking about hypocritical judgment and they thoroughly that's deserve that that's exactly what he's referring to they are being judged by their own standards, by what they do and how they act. The, 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 the people collectively known as Jews, they have had a, an agenda against Christian Europe. They hate us first just because we're Christians. Just because we believe Christ the Jews hate us. This is what Judeo-Christians will never understand. They're hated by Jews just because they call themselves Christians. For that fact alone, Jews understand that Christians are, quote-unquote, Nazis. Why? If you're a Christian, you keep the commandments of Christ. You don't commit homosexuality, you don't commit race-mixing fornication, you don't commit um, an, any of the adultery or any of these other sins that Jews really relish in. It's all throughout their Talmud, pedophilia, all these sexual crimes. Why are Jews basically the, the panderers of pornography and prostitution and gambling all throughout European history? Jews have acted in this manner. Usury, prostitution, pedophilia, pornography, and gambling. That, that has been their hallmarks for, for I don't know, for, for a thousand years since Charlemagne admitted them into the empire. This has been going on in Europe. And as soon as Jews became a, a, a significant, gained a significant presence in the United States, we had burlesque and gambling halls and prostitution and drugs and pornography. It, it's 
everywhere. As soon as the French Revolution and the emancipation of Jews, Europe was riddled with sin, which was unthinkable back in the 15th or 14th centuries. It's what they do, and, and it's how they undermine Christianity, and they undermine our culture by dragging our people, enough of our people up into sin, that they actually become the heads of our culture. That's what's happened in America and Europe today. And that's the story in the scripture, that, that for the sins of the children of Israel, that Esau would become the head and they would become the tail. We see scripture fulfilled to the letter today. Once we have the proper historical background, we have the ability to see it. And we see it repeating itself. And on that note, because it takes us back to Genesis chapter 3 once again. <laughs> well, we see, we see it repeating itself, don't we? I mean, once you understand that and you understand what went on in Judea, you, you can see exactly the same thing happening today. As, as well as the, the, the prophecies of it happening, you can you, you, you understand the way that the world is because you understand what the Bible is telling us. That, that's the whole point of the book, is it's an instruction manual of how to understand the world around us as white people. If you could actually read the Greek of the oldest manuscripts, this entire theme is very clear in the New Testament, but there are certain mistranslations and there are certain interpolations in later manuscripts that have made it into our King James Version of the Bible and most modern New Testaments that serve to cloud the issues, that serve to lead Christians to believe, mainstream Christians to believe, that it's all about behavior and it's not about race, where the New Testament actually teaches that even though we can sin, we have the ability to rise above the flesh to spiritual ideals. And even Adolf Hitler understood this. We have this ability, but the Jews and the other races do not have that ability. So the general behavior of your race is grounded in your genetics. And the Jews are a corrupt race. That's why they're called so often throughout the Bible, a corrupt race, a perverse race. Paul of Tarsus called them that. And John the Baptist called them a race of serpents. And Joshua Christ, Jesus Christ called them a race of serpents. He wasn't saying generation of serpents. They were a race of serpents. And that leads us back once again to Genesis chapter 3. Which we'll get into next week. Yes, we could go back to that and, and discuss that from this New Testament perspective. And that would be a good place to start. Okay, would you would you say that was um would you say that was that was the the single seed line theory just goes back to to Esau and doesn't go back any further? Right, and, and doesn't explain why Esau's children were rejected. They failed to do that. And, and that's actually the preponderance of American so-called Christian identity pastors and British Israel 
and, and they refuse to recognize that the Jews are a corrupt and wicked race right from the beginning. That these Jew, modern Jews, the British Israel people will say, oh, the Jews are Judah, or, or they're a portion of Judah. No, that's not true. They're no portion of Judah. No bastard is a German. If you're half German and half Negro, how could you claim to be a German? You're not German. But, well, it's the same thing with the Jews. They might have one or two ancestors that were really Israelites in, in the remote past, but most of their blood is Edomite, Canaanite, Arab, and, and several other races mixed in. If they have any white blood in them left, it's only because of recent intermarriage with Europeans. So, so these the, these Jews are all bastards. They're not Judah, but the British Israel people will simply say, "Oh, they're Judah, and that they're just estranged from God. They haven't been reconciled yet." This idea that the Jews are all going to convert to Christianity dates back to. Jewish Bible commentaries in the Middle Ages, that when the Jews convert to Christianity, Jesus is going to come and we're all going to be saved. No, that, that's Jewish messianism layered on top of Christianity by Jewish conversal Bible commentators. That is not Christian. And it's a thousand-year-old heresy. Christ says that all the tares, all, all those who don't believe him, they're not going to be converted. They're going to the lake of fire. They're eventually all going to be destroyed. Well, when Christians wake up to the truth, yeah, they would definitely all be destroyed. I could rant for hours. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'll just say one more thing. I, I, we talked about it before that all Israel is saved. Uh, all Israel is saved through Christ. So w when it's talking about things like that in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, I mean, it, it, that's already happened. You know, all Israel is is saved. Christ died on the cross for Israel. So there is no need for Jews to convert. There's nothing to do. No, with there's no need for Jews to convert, and and there's nothing that anything man can do to change what Christ did. You can't unsave yourself, and, and you can't save yourself. If you're a, a, a true-blooded, Adamic person, you have an eternal spirit, and Christ already has promised you preservation and has effected that. You can't, you can't, your fate is your biology. Where you came from is where you are going. And if you're a corruption, you're not going to endure. In the end, God will not be mocked. I will see you next week. Excellent. Excellent. Thanks, Bill. God bless you. Thank you, Sven. God bless. Praise Yahweh.